Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One thing I've learned from this podcast is that everybody feels left out in some way. And that on its own is a universal experience that has nothing to do with race and it has nothing to do with gender. And I think that's what's been surprising to me because I always thought that in those moments I felt that way because I was a woman or because I was Asian or because I was shorter or because I was older, I was younger. And everyone just feels that way. It doesn't really matter what your upbringing was or what your background was. There's something about the human experience that feels lonely on one side, but also desperately wants to feel connected on the other. And we don't always have the tools or the experience to allow us to be because our experiences have been so different. I think my name doesn't express me and who I am. I love to collect old Chinese cookbooks. And I'm looking for names that are from Chinese Americans when I look at the binding on the side. So if I had seen some Western sounding name, I'd probably have been like, uh, okay, next. <laughs> You're literally judging a book by its cover. <laughs> I know. But here's the thing. That's just one of the things. It's a fact of life about being mixed race and you can't change there's no control over it and people are just going to have to get used to it you can't assume anyone's identity anymore so i think that's good it's not necessarily like what we see today which are these big rallies and massive crowds people really disengage in the off season between elections when the real work that affects our lives gets done people don't have a way to answer the simple question is the person just elected whether or not i voted for them are they actually representing me it was so frustrating that people didn't have an easy way to know that i remember looking at a spreadsheet and just thinking someday the data is going to get there and there is going to be an easy way to track what is happening between elections it was something where i really felt this needs to exist in order for our democracy to work how it's supposed to work, for it to be truly representative. This was a passion project, but I ended up staying and manning the kitchen with zero restaurant experience and zero kitchen experience. Waking up early, working in a 120 degree environment, a kitchen, cooking with walks. So just radiation in your face and your body. And I loved it. It was amazing. But it was enough at some point. That's the interesting thing. There's a point where the urge is scratched and then you go back to something that provides more stability. And that has been my life. So he said, I don't think this is going to work. And I just looked at him directly in the eye because it didn't make sense based off of our experiences together. And I felt like where the relationship was going and the other conversations we had had. And he said, yeah, I don't think that we can continue this. And I said, why? And he said, well, I just don't think I could ever bring you home to my family. And I said, is it because I'm black? And he said, well, well yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. All right. Like, this is a senior executive at a tech company in San Francisco. He probably tells his friends, I'm not racist. I'm all these things, whatever. But at the end of the day, just couldn't picture himself with somebody who looks like me, regardless of who I am as a person, regardless of how I make him feel as a person. And that was pretty hard to hear in this day and age. It's like Christmas times a thousand on steroids. (laughs) Like every 
everything is decked out in red, even though we weren't in China or Taiwan. The lion dance was a huge thing. The lion dance troupe practiced for months. It was just something my Chinese school threw together. And then I saw some of the next level stuff that some of the people do. Like they jump on each other's heads and simulate the lion going upright. That was nuts. That's when I was like, okay, some people are really hardcore. I mean, they would take that head and jump onto somebody's shoulders and get twisted into it. It's like, what the hell? I mean, it's like some of it is really cool, but all I did was just kind of walk around. Oftentimes I have said that my kids in the Bronx, they were segregated more off of classic economics. So when they have to go to their local haunts, they will see people of color. It's not until they go to a bank or an office building where they even see white people. There's this scary other thing. But I feel my experience helped diminish that throughout my career. My code switching has been my superpower. Not the business facing switch when I go into the boardroom. It's the student facing voice when I go into the building. It's the difference between me walking into the classroom in Detroit and instead of saying, good afternoon, students, I'm going to say, what up, though? You know what I mean? I can speak a language that many of my colleagues can't. And the kids make an immediate connection to that. We're conditioned to want this American dream. You go to college, corporate culture, and then all of a sudden you get promoted to director and then VP and then SVP. That's what I thought success was. And so just trying to navigate assimilate means stripping myself of who I was, not just what I was wearing, the things that I was really into, but the tone of my voice, the texture of the way I communicate. And it wasn't until I could really separate myself from this unending rat race of trying to climb in a system that really felt not just mentally and emotionally difficult, but just in my body. It was like, this is too much. I don't know if I can keep up with this. I would argue that Black history is American history. So if you look at any of the major advancements in American history, they were because of Black people. They were built on the backs of Black people. They were built on the work of Black people. And so you can't point to anything that this country has done successfully and not give some form of attributing credit to Black people. I would challenge anybody to go through their Twitter feed, their Instagram feed, their group chats. Look at the memes that you share. I would argue that one out of two is a Black person. And it's like we are so integrated into popular culture and we as Black Americans drive that culture, but we don't always benefit from it financially. So for me, the part that is actually mind blowing is that people support Black people. People actually enjoy Black culture, but we don't actually financially contribute to it. And we don't financially contribute to the communities that are really driving that culture. And that's the shift we have to figure out and we have to make. My dad always really pushed me to be very career-driven and very education-driven. And then I had kids. And what I noticed was my dad would say certain things to me that implied he expected me to be the primary caretaker of our children. Like, I'd be like, hey, dad, do you mind coming over to babysit because my husband is busy and I've got to do this other thing? And my dad would be like, well do you really need to take that meeting? And I'm like, yeah, dad, just because now I have a child doesn't mean that all of a sudden my career priorities have shifted. And it took a little while for him to finally accept that there would be no stopping Sharon. She wasn't going to stop working as hard or she wouldn't be as focused. And it was interesting to watch his reaction to that because it had never been as direct as it was until after I had a child. 
women are supposed to be walking this way, talking this way, behaving this way. This was imposed by the boys of the college and that was a shock to me. But I didn't care less. They're not my parents, they're not my brothers or boyfriends. So why do I care? I remember pulling up to this brown home that sat on this hill thinking, oh yeah, that home's big. And in reality, it wasn't a huge. And I walk into it and all of a sudden there are all these kids that are all sorts of colors, shapes, sizes. And so there's two white parents who come to greet me with open arms and a myriad of very different looking kids. <laughs> all around me, black, Asian, and white. And it was pretty chaotic. All of a sudden, I had 12 other brothers and sisters. We're all Asian Americans, and so we've all kind of developed that armor. Ever since we were a child, of people saying things to you, microaggressions or aggression aggressions. And over the years, you develop an armor on how to take it, and how to deal with it, and how to process it to an extent. And we have not had an incident, thankfully. And I don't know what I'd do or say if we did. And I've been thinking about that actively. And I still don't know what I'd do or say. My parents were really into indigenous rights from the beginning. And so hearing their stories about self-determination in 1975, I got really passionate. And I feel indigenous rights really is indigenous sovereignty, self-determination, right? Really holding, maintaining cultural preservation. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's indigenous all over the world. And they hold their own culture. Here in New Mexico, we have 23 different tribes, 19 different pueblos. Each pueblo has their own unique culture their own dialect. Every tribe's different, but we carry the same ideas. We care for Mother Earth. We care for the environment. We care for one another, and we want to do right for one another. But we all have a different way of believing and thinking because of culture. At least three generations were born in slavery and got children in slavery. It was very difficult to see that very documented because it was administration of inventory. During the research, we found the name of the plantation director. And when I saw the papers with his name on it, knew that our surname was derived from his name. So you know there's a connection to see those papers and his signature, knowing he must be an ancestor. It's a strange feeling. You don't have the feeling that you can be proud of him because he was the owner. So you have a double feeling about that. When I wrote the book, I realized that I was going to be exposing my entire family to something pretty horrific. And then I was like, okay, but it's not that this horrific situation isn't happening. I'm just the one being torn up inside out by this every day. All I'm doing is naming the pain. I'm not making something up here. I'm just saying this thing that you do when you support this virulent racist who is going to inevitably bring harm to me and my community and the grandson that you love more than anything in this world. When you do this, it breaks my heart. When I was writing that part of it, I remember saying to my husband, if I write this book, it's really going to hurt. Because if I write the truth, it's not a comfortable truth. And we finally got to this place where he was like, you're just going to have to tell your truth. And then we'll just have to deal with whatever the fallout is. I 
went to a pretty diverse school, but I was one of three Muslims. And so everyone's like, what is on your head? From 14 to 26, covering my hair was this secret weapon. I knew what people were thinking, right? That I was going to be shy or I was from a faith that doesn't appreciate and support women. All the assumptions people might have when they see someone who overtly expresses their religion, right? And I loved it. I was like, I get to change every perception you have about me. And it was a sense of confidence. And I also think as a woman, it really pushed that type of attention away from me that felt very important and protective. And so I all of a sudden had all these ways of controlling my narrative. Start doing stand-up. 2001, 9-11 happens. I started doing a bunch of community activism work. There was suddenly this massive demand for Muslim speakers to just calm down scared white people. Churches, synagogues, libraries, candlelight vigil events, college campuses. I would get invited to be a speaker on Islam. Tell us why we shouldn't be scared. And it's a fucked up framing in retrospect, but obviously I understand this is a civilizational flashpoint and arguably the dynamic between the so-called Muslim world and the so-called West are really cultural fictions. Like, when will Muslims in Europe integrate? Yeah, it's like, have you heard of Bosnia? Do you realize that the mayor of London is Muslim? There's all these cultural, legal, governmental fictions propagated. This is a big question I wonder all the time. Who controls the rhythm of the algorithm? I remember we would drive around, listen to NPR. Whenever the word Muslim came up, I would be like, oh my gosh, they know about us. They know of our existence. They just mentioned Muslims. How cool. I had no idea what they were saying because I was nine. But then there was a period for years and years and years where I heard the word Muslim or I read it in an article every single day. All of a sudden, it was such an us versus them kind of rhetoric being told. And I realized I was part of the them starting on September 12th all the way through college. I was a poster child and I remember one girl came up to me asking questions about Ramadan and again I was 12 like I'm not a religious scholar I'm just trying to pass math class. At that point all Muslims became societal pariahs and being black you already feel some sense of being marginalized and now I'm going to add to it but I was really struck by how universal the message was. Remember your faith, being your best self, being a reflection of your religion when you interact with other people. I had grown up thinking Islam was different and I was surprised at how common the themes were. I could separate the zealots from the Arabs that I saw, the Chinese Muslims that I knew, the African Muslims. What I experienced was just a world apart from that and I wanted to be a part of it. Back then, yeah, I'd gotten the Broadway show, but I was in the ensemble and swinging for other characters. And a couple shows after that, I was always part of the ensemble, but would be featured a little bit, you know? And I remember thinking like, oh, I wonder if I'll ever actually be a character. (laughs) Because as much as, you know, everything is colorblind, it's different. It's different for performers of color and it's gotten a lot better. And there's so much amazing things happening. And it's really cool to see, but I still think there can be more and not just quantity, but quality. Like, just because you have an Asian person in your show doesn't mean that it's automatically diverse. Because it's like, what are you doing with that character? Just being immersed in the Korean family and the nuances of it kind of takes you back of like what it was to be with your family in a new environment, but also trying to 
fitted. There's a lot of genuine feelings I evoke from the movie. It feels familiar, but also feels new and very immersive. I definitely had a real emotional response. I was just really touched by how sweet and gentle a story it is. And it, it both felt like a story that was so new because we don't unfortunately see a lot of stories about Asian Americans, but it felt like an American family story as well. You could never fit the mold. There was no way to do that because I was too young as a woman. There's no Asians in comedy. There's no women in comedy, really. So it was weird. But also, I could, in comedy, really embrace my oddness and the fact that I didn't fit in to make a place for myself. So that's one of the advantages of being different in comedy. Trying to fit in was just not an option because it was just too jarring for the audience to see me anyway. So I had to convince them that it was going to be okay. I think it comes down to intersectional identities and how complex it is. And not just all the different facets that make us up with the different cultures, but the intersections that they occur in. Even just the specific Asian identities like Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian, and how that impacts the way they carry themselves within the queer community is an area that we definitely need a lot of work in. Even just the gay community is very white dominant due to cultural trends where we have a lot of queer liberation happening in more Western countries and our Asian countries are a little bit behind, we end up over-indexing on white perspectives and therefore also this erasure of the nuances around respect for elders, filial piety, that we are still struggling with figuring out how do we find space for that. I call my yaya several times a year, usually during the holidays. Our calls always follow the same structure. I say hi, he asks which one of his grandchildren is calling, he asks me if I'm at school or at home, and we finish. Three minutes of his Chinese and my English going head to head until one of us no longer has any idea what the other is saying. But I feel overwhelmingly guilty that I can't hold a real conversation with him. Aside from a couple of basic English words, he only speaks Mandarin Chinese. You would assume that I can as well, given that both of my parents also speak it, but you'd be wrong. When I was 9, 10, I got to meet all my American cousins. Some of them didn't speak Korean at all, I didn't speak English. Suddenly, this world opens up. You meet people related to you, live in a completely different life. And I just remember the energy, some openness, kind of free to be. That gave me a taste. And so we started having conversations as a family. What could that mean? If this is what you want, let's try it. So we picked up everything, left everything behind, and moved from Korea to Canada. We got ourselves as a country into this more or less dichotomy somehow. Should we have more policing or should we have less policing? Should we defund or abolish? And it was just not a useful conversation because it's not where most people are. The truth is people want a different and better. People on the left and the right, they want to be safe. They know that the current system is not set up for that, particularly not for minoritized communities. So what we're proposing is something that's different and better. I mean, there's no way to say this except that the current policing structure in America was created in a different time and for a different purpose than what's needed now. To this day, people still make the very same jokes that I heard when I was five years old. I mean, it was particularly a difficult name because I was growing up in a time and a place where it was just not tolerated to be so different and then to insist on being so different. At the same time, I was getting so many mixed messages. People would make fun of my name and then tell me in the next moment, but you should keep your name forever. It's a great name. And I would think, you're actually just lying to me right now because you don't want that name. 
but you think that I should keep this name because somebody else gave it to me. And it made me think about how our sense of identity really gets mixed up in names that other people give to us. We felt very seriously about bringing in kids during the two administrations. And the second time around, by stroke of chance, the world in between was a very different place. And as gay dads eight years ago, our posture was often defensive. The three of us would be out and you'd be batting away the questions about where's the mom. And so out of the gate, we would try and get ahead of the critique and the commentary. And, and by the way, not, not mean-spirited most of the right. time, just genuinely confused. And I think in the intervening eight years, that's changed and I've changed, right? Like I'm unabashedly a proud gay dad. I strapped my son and the baby Bjorn. I have got my daughter and her backpack walking from the bus stop and my husband holding my hand. As a man, you realize, holy cow, I could really be a rebel without a cause. And it wasn't long when I started looking at my dad differently, directly after that realization. When that epiphany came, I'm like, wow, he stayed in hard. <laughs> like, he stayed in the pocket, right? And now, like, I'm someone with, like, a lot of options in the way that I have chosen to live my life and the way that God has blessed it. That, like, I'm like, wow, what is it that you gain from going where the suffering is? What is it that to gain by taking on a large amount of a responsibility and how does that affect your personal development and development of your society and the people around you. My parents had music parties in the house growing up. I would listen to music through my mother's womb and we used to have so many people in our house all the time. It's a very Indian thing, right? People would just turn up at your door. They don't even call. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was great. It was very normal to have tons of people in our home and people would bring their harmoniums and just come and sing and play. And actually some of the great musicians would be in my home growing up. And so just music was all around me ever since I was young. It's just part of the backdrop of life. I would argue our show is an American podcast. I feel that in my bones, America is going to become a mosaic, a melting pot, a bowl of chili. But even though I've been in these conversations with all different types of people, majority, minority, male, female, white, black, brown, all sorts of colors. And yet, because we look the way we look, we're seen as an Asian podcast. And I think that ties into everything we're talking about right now. As much as fundamentally and philosophically, I agree we're an American podcast because that is the foundation of this country. People will put you into a category based on how you look. Helping me to have a reckoning with this concept of performative allyship. All they're trying to do is this virtue signaling. If you don't want to do this out of the goodwill of your heart, and if you just don't want to donate, then don't be an ally. Don't be an ally. <laughs> It's okay. Some of this is really just a way for their businesses to continue because otherwise they're not going to make any money. You just don't go in and say, oh, now I know this. I am now an anti-racist physician or that I will not discriminate against another gay person ever because there's so much about how we look at race, how we look at sexuality, how we look at people who are not cisgendered white males because of how we're acculturated through society that it has to become a deliberate practice. And so while we can teach a lot of the, the basics in medical school and residency, what we really are thinking about is getting physicians to critically think about how do they actually have mindful practice associated with gender and really getting people to 
to understand that the reason you have to be deliberate in your practice is because if you're not careful, you end up relying back on stereotypes. Because of stereotypes, they're shortcuts, but they're shortcuts that lead to bad care. Growing up in a small town, I didn't really think of rock and roll as like a white space or anything. There's a niche for telling these stories around the time I grew up that's not really being filled on YouTube. Rock and roll is so far reaching that it can unite people who may be politically divided or whatever, but they can form a great community over their love of music or art or whatever. What's been great about my channel is I don't try to take sides. I've covered some pretty controversial topics, but I try to just tell the story and let people decide for themselves. I still carry within me the little girl who lived in Boiling Springs. Someone who is often scared, often wanting to disappear, and hungry. <laughs> I never left that little girl behind. I carry her with me and part of that is what made me want to be a writer because I thought it would be something that you could escape into, sort of hibernate. And that's why a lot of girls don't get into comics. And that's why it's so refreshing to see Kamala Khan. She's nerdy, she's geeky, she loves her family, she loves her friends. She's just trying to do her thing and pass math class. And yeah, it was just all very relatable. One of the things that actually bother me is her rogues gallery. What do you mean by her rogues gallery? Super villains. Maybe her main villain is time management. <laughs> it's really, or just like balancing family expectations who knows let's just be real as people of color there are certain things our caucasian brothers and sisters can get away with that we cannot that meant all the disrespect all the harassment i had to calculate my responses because i knew the playing field was not even and this is no judgment i love my caucasian brothers and sisters in this game but the game is just kind of different in almost any industry whether you're an architect or a comedian it doesn't matter it's that need to control your responses it's almost like you're not allowed to have a normal range of emotions because if you do then you're the angry black woman or the sassy latin woman and so there's always a need for that unfortunately for people of color until the perception of who we are changes if it's lonely at the top it gets lonely a lot faster when you're a woman when you need support more than ever all of a sudden you are the one now expected to give support to other women rather than thinking about power as the zero-sum game coming together to expand the table to ultimately change the face of leadership when i think about a woman in power i don't think of somebody who looks like me it really doesn't matter what you're wearing what you look like or your age if you're powerful this is a place for you to come together with other powerful women and to feel included I remember going to college telling myself, why does every time we pop up on screen, it's either as a waiter, a servant, a martial artist. I have nothing against martial artists, but when you see it over and over again, you grow tired of it. Always some other, right? The professional foreigner or even invisible, right? Even though you're on screen, you're invisible because you're just a prop. You're not serving the story. The story does not revolve around an Asian family or protagonist in Hollywood mainstream. And I just thought, man, why aren't there more Asian Americans working in Hollywood and being three-dimensional, fully realized characters who are just part of the fabric of America? People kept telling me day in and day out when I was doing music, like, your ethnicity is not necessarily an asset when we go out into the actual marketplace, to the point where for my first album, 
the idea was to maybe do covers and promo imagery that didn't show my face, but maybe showed parts of my body or my hair or whatnot. Just like anything that would kind of cover up the fact that I'm Asian. In a way, it was empowering because it was like, listen to my voice. Don't look at me. It was what got me in the door because I was so quote unquote unique, but it was also what never sealed the deal. Complex problems can be broken down into small steps. And so you actually don't need to figure out the whole thing at the beginning. I'm increasingly comfortable with the notion that I don't know it all, but I can figure it out. The toughest part for most people is to take the first step. And so I take the first step and I will continue to make forward progress until I hit something where I say this doesn't make sense. So I'm okay putting it aside, or I'll continue going until it actually becomes something. I find that oftentimes when we talk about entrepreneurship, we see where the arrow landed and then draw a bullseye around it and say, this was my intent the whole time. Aren't I a genius? And that's very rarely true. It would enable a lot of people to realize that it's messier than they believe. I honestly felt like I scammed my way in. Even when I moved to LA for honestly like eight years, I was ashamed that I liked the music that I liked. I wanted to like smart people music. I was like, Susie, your power chords aren't complex. Like the Weezer riffs you're learning, nobody else likes that. And I was just like so ashamed. I didn't even tell people I played guitar when I moved to LA because I didn't feel real. And then I just let go. Yeah, give me, give me the guitar. And then I just started writing stuff and started making music and I was like, whoa. I can play the guitar. I've owned it more. Like I'm like really proud of it and really happy on, on the music that I grew up on. My friends who know me know that I really have a hard time waking up. So getting up a couple to three times a night to feed your kid, I'm amazed you can do it, but you can do it when it's your kid. It's an evolutionary advantage that babies are cute because, <laughs> right? Because if any other person would wake you up that often in the night, you'd be upset. But it's your adorable baby. So you're like, all right, I can't stay mad at you. Like I've never been great with emotions. I did not know that you could love someone this it's amazing. When the Rodney King story broke, the host of the show says we should talk to the cops' parish priests and see if they could give us character portraits of these cops. And I said, I think we should be talking to Rodney King's kindergarten teacher, because the kindergarten teacher is as relevant as these cops' priests. There was silence in the room, and the executive producer said, okay, noted. What stories do you think we should be doing? Then I pull my paper back and I start going through them and that meeting ends and I walked into the ladies room and I just collapsed like it just took all the courage I had it's my first big journalism job and I was speaking up and telling them they were wrong and that's when I realized I was going to stick with this career and it was going to work out Mixed race identity differs significantly from monoracial identities. If you are the white son of a white Scottish, you are a white Scot in Scotland, Brazil, in Nigeria, Kenya, and America. But if you are the son of a white Scottish and a black Jamaican, then in Scotland you are something else, in Jamaica you are something else, and in America you are something else. And this presents opportunities and challenges. It's not feeling a sense of control over how you are perceived. So if I walk into a Nigerian village, I will be perceived as whitish, even though I grew up in Nigeria. And when I got to Poland, they'd call me all those nasty names, despite the fact my mom was Polish. 
Identity is something kids pick up quite quickly, which identities to emphasize. There's challenges involved, you know, there's some bad, but there's also some good, so I have to take both. You know, Robin, from a queer perspective and in the world of queer comic nerds, has been coded queer since the beginning. Way back when, in the bad old days when you weren't even allowed to say gay, queer people were still reading comics, still loving them and enjoying them. They just couldn't see themselves in the comics. So they were kind of reading themselves into it. So why would you change Robin to bisexual when he's dated women? Well, it sort of was a no-brainer. It happens to a lot of bisexual people like me who you kind of go along and society is kind of telling you all kinds of straight stuff and then you suddenly go, uh-oh, um, I have an attraction that's a little bit different. And to me, it just seemed like a natural character development rather than a retconning or someone turning somebody gay. The most sinking feeling is like, whoa, that could have happened to me. So learning, I come from a community and a tradition and a history of people who stood up and fought back. You said, this is bullshit. We need to fight for justice for our community. It totally lit a fire under me. When the lights went up, that's the moment that I became Asian American because I truly believe it's an identity you opt into. You have to choose to become Asian American. That was the moment where I went from just being a Korean kid from Silicon Valley to like, oh, I belong to this community and I want that to mean something. I wanted to make an underworld-themed film, right? I mean, grew up on mm -hmm. Scarface, Goodfellas, and Godfather. I was like, what's the Chinese version of that, right? And the iteration for me was like, oh, let's, let's make it a woman. For me, having the strong Asian matriarchs was super important because that's all I had in my life growing up. And I'm fascinated by them, and I was like, that's the story I want to tell. There's something a little bit more nuanced that was never portrayed in any film, in any media. And I'm gonna stand on this one. This is the story that if I get one shot to make a movie, this is the one I'll be happy with. Women born in the South in the 40s did not have a lot of ways to express themselves, especially not creatively. And so for a woman like that to have a child with a Turkish Muslim immigrant, where I was still always the brown sheep, she achieved what seemed impossible her whole life. And that's why, even though I'm standing next to John Lewis, I said, Mama, we made it because we did. There's not a lot of moments in your life where all the wrongs and all the pain seem worth it. But if you stand up on a stage with John Lewis telling you you're his son and that your mother helped you change the world, it gives you a little bit of hope for what you can do with a life well spent. There's a different meaning for people as they go through their lives, right? Because Diwali is super fun, it's super playful, it is about gathering communities. So when you're young, it will have a different meaning or way of celebrating it to say maybe when you're older or depending on what your path is in life. But it is something that everyone can celebrate and it's so sweet to see how people from other cultures are so curious about it. Because what's not to love? It's food, it's light, it's celebration. Who doesn't love a good sparkler, right? Have you smelt a sparkler as a grown-up and it takes you back? It's amazing. Honestly, it's just such a distinctive smell and it just takes you back. I don't know if you've done it in the last few years, but find one, spark it up and just enjoy the nostalgia that comes. Some artists feel their art makes a statement on the world that is radical enough that that is in fact activism. But I really don't feel like it's doing the work of activism. I would love to think that what I write opens people's minds and maybe they can relate to it and maybe it causes them to ask critical questions about themselves or be more critical about the world around them. But it's not activism. It's about that next step to get out there 
and do some kinds of grassroots work to actually affect change. We've always had writings of brilliant people that encourage us to really embrace one another and make this universe a better place. But we still have terrible things despite that. So art alone isn't going to cut it. One of the best aspects of cryptocurrencies that are public and permissionless, that don't require a gatekeeper to give you permission to buy, to trade, to sell, is very important for minority communities that have been systemically marginalized, intentionally redlined. In this moment in time, if you're going to be a modern minority, you have got to own things in a way that doesn't allow for current systems to keep you out. You need to be in this like yesterday. With every human being on earth, you just want to be seen, heard, and valued. And especially coming from the entertainment industry, that is what a lot of people struggle with because you're constantly having rejection and rejection, rejection from the castings. With Peloton, it's lovely as well because you know, there's a thing that in the monastery was trying to be a service and that will fulfill you. If you're of service, it gives you more meaning. And I do feel like I am of service to whoever's on the other side. If I can make one person feel a little better about their day, then it's such a, a, a lucky thing to be able to do for people. And when I started to write this, I was thinking a lot about the changing demographics. It's already started to upset the power structure. The power is never given up without a fight. And so what I did was create a timeline 30 years into the future, very much thinking about the way far right movements rise in history. Indigenous people are in a unique position to offer a warning to say, we have been here, we know what this is, because white supremacy is a threat to undermine all of us and the values that we uphold. It's a system based on fossil fuels. It blames you for the electricity system, it blames you for the transportation system, but everybody is living in the only system they've been given. We know from psychology that when the body experiences shame, it doesn't motivate you to act, it motivates you to sit down and sit back and feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want people to feel bad, I want them to feel inspired. And the beauty is that there is so much economic opportunity associated with, with solving the climate crisis. So if we can look wide-eyed, not turn away from the problems and the reality of how this impacts some communities more than others, then we can also look at how we can solve climate change for everybody, right? clean electricity for all. We can put people back to work. We can invest in communities that have been left behind. We can clean up everybody's air. That's what the promise of addressing climate change can do. My goal is to give more people access to the climate movement and make the climate movement fight for everybody. One day in first grade, the teacher had everyone share what they got for Christmas. I was a, this Muslim kid and all the Jewish kids looking at each other with terror. What the hell are we going to say? And I just froze for a while and eventually said a rabbit. I remember walking home that day, locking myself in the bathroom, looking at the mirror and being so angry and ashamed yeah. that I was the one brown kid. Why did I have to have brown skin? Why do I have to be different? Social anxiety is this fear of evaluation from other people. You are afraid people think you're ugly, strange, stupid, dumb, weird, unlovable. And the core childhood experience I had was this fear that people think I am strange and different. You can't expect to do better unless you know better. It is impossible to understand your present unless you know how you got here. It's about building empathy, understanding who we are as Americans collectively, because it's just necessary to understanding one another.
It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.